in Genesis 1, in the Torah, beginning in the fifth verse, the first word, counting every 172 letters, every 172 letters, spells the name... The Rob and Caleb Show. Is that Torah true? Resource presents the Rob and Caleb Show. All aboard! And now, from two sides of the same state, here they are, Rob and Caleb. What up? And shalom. Welcome to the Rob and Caleb Show. My name is Caleb Hag. With me, as always, a Rob Van Hoff. What up and shalom, Rob? Shalom. How's it going, brother? It's going well. I'm I'm exploring, like, putting the mug right in front of the camera. Hang on, I suppose I should switch over so I can see what you're doing. Oh, did you not see? I'm just like... <laughs> well, hey, welcome to the Rob and Caleb show, everyone. We're happy that you're Water with us. Water tastes better when I drink it from my TR mug. Yeah, you can get your own TR mug, everyone who's listening. You can get your TR mug at TorahResource.com. Uh, you can find it on our merchandise page uh, in our store. Anyway, um, yeah, welcome to the Rob and Caleb <laughs> show. That was a little plug there. We're happy you you have joined us today. Uh, I suppose, uh, yeah, I suppose we should start this show off by me. Uh, now, I posted this on our Facebook page, but I know we have a lot of people who listen to the show who are not fans of us on Facebook, which is totally fine. And we thank you, everyone who does listen to us on a regular basis. Last week, I made a big, big faux pas, and I uh, need to ask forgiveness and apologize for it. I used the wrong name. So we were talking about black marks on theology, and uh, I was giving three examples. I gave an example of 119 Ministries. I gave an example of Michael Rood. And then I gave an example of another person I meant to be talking about Joe Good. Um, and I, I think because Joe, in my mind, uh, I was thinking about Joe, when Joseph Good, uh, debated James White, I accidentally said Lou White instead of Joseph Good. And, uh, I, that is a misrepresentation for sure. I, I have not agreed with, with Lou White on many, many different things. In fact, I, I strongly disagree with his book on, uh, fo- called Fossilized Customs. However, uh, Lou White has not backed the Copper Scroll Project, to my knowledge. He also has not denied the deity of the Messiah, whereas Joseph Good has done both of those things. Joseph Good has backed the Copper Scroll Project. He also has denied the deity of the Messiah. So um, my apologies uh, to our listeners, and also my apologies to Lou White. I know that if someone said that I had denied the deity of the Messiah, I would be livid. And so I apologize to Lou White. I have gone back. I have edited that uh, that broadcast both on our radio station and on my YouTube page. I have taken that part out and I have reposted it. So uh, once again, my apologies. And I hope that that clears that up for everyone. Okay. Uh, what's next? Well, I should say this. We uh, received the money from wonderful, generous donors to make stickers. Oh, yeah. Cool. Hey. Yeah. And so, uh, thank you. Uh, I Yeah, we should have stickers here on March 18th. And if you listen to this show on a regular basis, or if you don't, but you are hearing it and you like it for the first time, and you want a sticker, 
you can let us know. Uh, I will probably just put, when they come in, I'll probably take pictures of them and post them on the Facebook page. And if you want one, you can go on the Facebook page and put it in the comments once they're posted. So the people who donated the money, I'm going to give them mad props. Uh, they donated enough money, and we'll just, tell, we'll just say that they donated, donated enough money to produce today's show. Um, so our official producers of the show today are Adam Smith. Thank you, Adam Smith, for your donation and for helping produce The Rob and Caleb Show, and also Rebecca Walton. Uh, thank you to Rebecca Walton for uh, donating for today's show. And so are either one of these awesome listeners and supporters responsible for our intro music choice today? Uh, no, uh, that's that <laughs> joking. Uh, that was that was because we're going to be talking about uh, Bible codes. Should be a good time. But first, uh, we had a lot of feedback from last w- week's show. Last week we talked about generational curses. I'm having a hard time talking today. Sorry about that. Uh, generational curses is what we talked about. And it brought up some lively conversation. And not only that, but it made me realize that we should clarify for sure on some of these issues. Yeah, I learned a lot about just talking to people. I have other emails and seeing people post ideas and then personal you know, conversations. I didn't realize, and, you know, there's a whole sub culture out there with different streams of what generational curses are, what they mean, implications for believers. And so uh, I, I'm a little bit ignorant on on that whole area of, of what I would call discourse or conversation and books and teachings and things like that. Well, we I, I have to admit that, you know, a lot of this is uh, personal belief a lot of it gets this whole area i think for everyone just kind of gets into the area of personal belief because you can't be super dogmatic on a lot of this kind of stuff the one thing that i really took exception to last week was this gentleman uh what was his name graham walsh an australian gentleman seems to love the lord i don't know graham personally i've never seen anything except for his on him except for his interview with uh sid roth on it's supernatural uh, so that's the extent I know of of Graham Walsh. But one of the things that I took strong exception to was he said that if you sin today and you forget to ask forgiveness for it, or you neglect to ask forgiveness for it, your children or your children's children or your children's children's children will be cursed because of it by God, essentially, and that uh, they will then... Or I don't maybe not by God, but maybe by demons. I don't know. Uh, but anyway, neither here nor there. They'll be cursed for it. They will pay the price for your sin today if you neglect to ask forgiveness. I strongly disagree with that. And I think the Ezekiel passage that we brought up. Uh, what is it? Ezekiel eighteen twenty. Uh, let's see here. Do I have it written down? I do have it written down here. The person who sins will die. The son will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity, nor will the father bear the punishment for the son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. I think that that verse is is pretty self-explanatory. And so I think that we need to, we have to take all of scripture as a whole. We can't just say, oh, well, these verses over here explain one thing or the other. And actually, that reminds me, I was going to try to find Klein's 
comments on Exodus 25 and 6, and I, I forgot to do that, so maybe I'll have that next week. Anyway, so um, we had a lot of feedback, and one of the feedback that we had was from our good friend Ryan. Ryan uh, wrote and, and brought up some very good verses uh, to talk about. We don't have to go in order here, so maybe we'll read one of these verses, talk about it, and then we'll move over to Adam's uh, comments. So Ryan wrote, and he just brings up this verse. This is Second uh, Samuel twelve thirteen through sixteen. This is, and I bring this one up first because this is the one I had the most trouble trying to uh, explain and think about. It says, uh, and I'm reading out of the ESV. It says, David said to Nathan, "I have sinned against the Lord." And Nathan said to David, "The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die." Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house, and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David. That's, yeah, anyway. And uh, he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And in this story, a little bit later in, in, uh, I think, 17 or 18, the child actually dies. Um, so the question was posed, well, obviously if, if we are claiming that Ezekiel eighteen twenty is saying that a child doesn't pay for the sins of the father, then what about this story with David? Do you have any thoughts on this, Rob, or should I launch into what I... Well, it's a great verse to bring up in the conversation. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, because it, it, uh, it's difficult, you know? I mean, we, we're not told how to understand it. You know, we're not we're not told that that this it's the child. You know, it, here's a question: Is the child being punished? That's a good it, question. That, that's one question. The other question is: Is there any curse? Is is this notion of curse we're talking about? Because you know the the umbrella concept I think we're talking about is generational curse, which is a phrase not, to my knowledge, in any English translation of the Bible. Um, so this concept of generational curse, I think, is one of those things, you know, just like any anything that we don't find in the Bible, we can then come up with all sorts of different definitions. Um, so there's no sense of curse here. There is a sense of, of David's sin, but as you read, you know, it says, the Lord has put away your sin, you shall not die. In other words, David's not going to die for the sin. Well, well, he's got two sins that are on the table. He, he committed adultery, right? Bathsheba is the wife of Uriah, and then he he basically, you know, tried to cover it up, tried to make it look, you know, get Uriah and, and Bathsheba back together so maybe they would think it was Uriah's baby. Uriah was a just man, so then he ends up killing essentially him. killing him, yeah. putting him up and said, tells Joab to pull the army away, you know, and leave him exposed. And so he's got both those. Those are two of the ten, right? Two of the ten words right there. I actually really like this passage. I'm sorry to interrupt, but I really like no, this passage no. because, because you have uh, Nathan, <laughs> Nathan comes to him and tricks him with this, with this story. You know, he tricks him with this little tale that he tells about this guy who has... The ewe lamb. The ewe lamb. And, and Which he re- was like a daughter, a bot to yeah, him. Yeah. And, and, and so, yeah, Nathan's they, they, they name it the word Bathsheba. They name this little thing. They bring it into their house, all this kind of stuff. And then, you know, this one guy who has all... He, he, he takes the guy's lamb and he kills it and, and serves it for a meal. And David's so ticked off. He's like, what in the world? This guy needs to... First of all... Death. Yeah, the death. First... We're going to kill him. Let's kill him. 
then, then all of a sudden he's like, uh. Nathan's like, no, dude, that's it's you. I'm talking about you. <laughs> and he's like, fourfold restitution. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like he, he puts on the brakes a little bit. Anyway, keep going. I didn't mean to cut you off. No, and so I would I just don't know that this applies to this idea of generational curses. It doesn't seem to fit any description that uh, that we were talking about. Um, in that the this child didn't live just a few days, apparently, and um, so it's not that the child needed to you know, repent. We don't know. You know, we're assuming the child just went to be with the Lord. Um, I think that, yeah, I think that this, uh, I think you have several things going on. First of all, I think I should clear this up. I don't believe, okay, I believe, and we had several people say, say this, sin can bring sickness. Okay. I believe that. I do believe that sin can bring sickness. I believe God can inflict us with sickness for whatever reason he chooses. And I think that at certain times, even for believers, the Lord allows uh, demons and, and uh, evil, the evil side to afflict us with, uh, with sickness. I'll talk about that in a few minutes. Um, so I think, I, I'm not saying that if you're, like, I'm not saying that all sickness is just because. There are times when I think sickness comes because of sin. But what, I, what I'm against is saying, oh, you have, you know, you have cancer of the lungs. That means that you are suffering from the sin of you know, this sin or, oh, you have, you know, psoriasis. That's because you, you know, you have this sin. No, it doesn't work like that. I don't think it works like that. Um, but one of the things that several people brought up that I definitely do agree with, there is sin that will, that will, uh, cause physical sickness. For instance, bitterness. I think everyone goes to bitterness. Bitterness is something that that uh, wells up inside of a person. It can bring all sorts of physical ailments, uh, you know, stress and uh, all all sorts of stuff. Um, so I'm not saying that if that all sickness is just because, okay. But I don't think you can say, oh, well, you know, if you have migraines, it's because you have unresolved sin with your mother, or you know, it's not. I don't, I don't believe that. Anyway, back to this Second uh, Samuel passage. I looked a ton of different commentaries. Nobody wants to touch this. None of the commentaries want to talk about uh, this, This, you know, David's son dying for this. There's one person that I found who talked about it, and it wasn't even really in a commentary. It's called Toward Old Testament Ethics by our good friend, Dr. Walter Kaiser. This is kind of a long passage, but I'm going to read it anyway. I, by the way, I, I before full disclosure, I disagree with uh, Kaiser on this, but I felt like since he was the only person that I could find who wrote on it, I should read it. He says, "When children repent, uh, I'm sorry. When children repeat the crimes and sins of their parents, they give evidence that they hate God, and accordingly, they will earn the same punishment as their God-hating uh, fathers. However, quote, fathers shall not be put to death for the children, nor the children put to death for their fathers. Each is to die for his own sin." Uh, as Moses made plain in Deuteronomy twenty four sixteen, no eternal condemnation can be laid on either the parents or the children by the, by the other party, even though God does often allow some temporal punishments to come to children for the sake of parents when the sin involves, one, national guilt and shame. And he gives an example, I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. 
and that's in First Samuel fifteen two several. Oh, oh I'm sorry, in First uh, Samuel fifteen two several hundred years after the Exodus in Saul's day. Okay, and then uh, number two, final religious rejection of his message or messenger, and so upon you the generation of Jesus' day will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, end of, uh, end of Old Testament canon in Ju- Judaism, uh, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Okay, so, and that's Matthew twenty three thirty five. Okay, number three, fraud and extortion of another man's good name or property, as in the case of Ahab's uh, filching of Naboth's name and vineyard. And he gives some examples there as well. And then number four, giving uh, occasion to the enemies of God's uh, God to blaspheme His name. By doing this, David uh, David's sin with Bathsheba, you have made the enemies. And he quotes this passage: "Enemies of the Lord show utter contempt. The son born to you will die." So then he goes on. However, God does not always take this route in avenging the offenses of the fathers. So basically, what what uh, Kaiser's saying here is is that Eternal condemnation never comes on a child because of a, of a parent. I agree with that fully. He says some temporal things come on to a child because of a parent. I would agree with that too, to an extent. Um, for instance, I would say that situation, and I talked about this a little bit last, last week, situation has a lot to do with things. For instance, if I uh, do something stupid and I uh, become enslaved uh, to a people if I have a child while enslaved, my child is obviously being enslaved as well. So cause and effect. Things that I do today will affect my the generations to come. And that's how world history works too. That's how history in general works, whether it's in uh, the world or a family. I'm not trying to say that I have the answers to all, all of this, but all I'm saying is, is that I don't think that you can say that uh, uh, a, a child pays for the, you know, if I forget to, to, uh, repent of a sin that my child's going to pay the price from for it. God isn't vengeful like that. And I don't, I believe that, that, uh, the, the Ezekiel passage speaks directly against that. If you have a good explanation for the second Samuel passage, the two thirteen through 16, I would love to hear it. The only explanation that I personally can give, and I know it's not a satisfactory uh, explanation. The only one that I can, that I the way that I see this in my own mind is that the child didn't pay the price. We think of death as, as a punishment, but I don't think that death here was, was a punishment to the child. I think death was a punishment to David. The death and, of the, the child was right. a punishment to David. We have the, the line of the Messiah, too, that is in mind here. In other mm-hmm. words, David, you know, Bathsheba is in Matthew 1. Right now, she's not called Bathsheba; she's called the wife of Uriah, mm-hmm. which preserves the controversy. So you know we have kind of the scandal is there. We have a few of these scandals in Matthew one. We have this, you know, the scandal of of Tamar and Judah. We have the scandal of of Ruth and Boaz, right? Which was kind of you know seemed kind of scandalous, maybe. And then we have we have the scandal of of. Uh, Mary and Joseph, right? Of course, but but here, most certainly, when it says Solomon, you know, was born to David and the wife of Uriah, that brings Uriah's name into the genealogy of Matthew one, and we're supposed to remember the lesson here. In other words, 
God, God had a plan, right? God knew what he was going to do. And just like Abraham jumped the gun, you know, following Sarah's advice and having a baby with Hagar, in a way, who knows, you know, maybe in another way, if David would not have uh, committed adultery, maybe Uriah would have died in battle and, and they would have been married later anyway, you know, but it was going to happen one way or another. Um, but this, the lesson here is definitely has to do with God's sovereignty on one hand, the lineage that will be, you know, recorded for us in terms of Messiah, the, the Davidic king, the covenantal context where if, if this son was permitted to live and beca- would become king, right, it, and, and then the nations of the world would, would scorn and, and all this, you know, it, it would just not, it wouldn't be sanctifying to God's name in the world. So there's all these different trajectories of, of things that are going on here. Well, it, my, I was talking to my father about this passage, too. And, and like I said, I don't necessarily think that death is a punishment for, you know, it, it's not necessarily a punishment. Paul talks about how if, you know, he would rather be with the Lord, but his work here on earth isn't done yet. So he has to, you know, he has to stick around. Um, you know, it's almost like he's wishing death on himself. And the reason why is because he wants to be with the Lord. He sees that as almost as like a reward. Like I get to go be with the Lord. Uh, it seems to me like in this passage, the death of the child is is a punishment to David. The other point that you have to bring into it is, I mean, obviously our Wesleyan friends are not going to agree with this, but <laughs> it's it, you start. I start thinking about okay, well, you know, if all things are predestined or all things are destined to be by God, or if God can even let's take it from a Wesleyan standpoint, if God knows all things before they happen, can they change? So, in other words, would the child have died anyway? Everyone's appointed to die at a specific time. The Almighty knows when my death, the exact second that my death will happen. And he knew the exact death that David's child would happen. Would that death have happened no matter what? I would like to say that it would. That child would have died at that time and place no matter what. Um, so, but, but I guess you can't really, I mean, those are things we can't know and we can't, you know, we can't discuss on that. Anyway, so let's, let's uh, keep going with this. So, so the one problem, I guess there's a few problems. One is, does it apply to this idea of generational curses? Right. I, I would have to say no, mentioned. but, um, uh, of course, it, if it was, you know, we don't know that David's dad, Jesse was an adulterer or a murderer, right? So this was a new, new sin, but the the narrative of Samuel doesn't frame this, doesn't label it a generational curse, doesn't use the word curse or anything like that. And so this is, this verse is, I, in my view, is an outlier. In other words, it doesn't really fit what we're talking about um, directly. Let's, uh, let's go to, to Adam's comments here. And so Adam says, I do believe in generational sin in as much as this means later generations are affected or may have struggle with like trappings or temptations as their ancestors or earlier generations. I agree. I don't, however, believe that uh, that person's sickness, cancer, diabetes, etc., is caused by a sin their grandparents committed or, they ever, or, or that every sickness or ailment has a connection to sin. So basically what I said, I think Adam said it better than I did, but I totally agree with that. A few areas where I see past sins having some ramification on those who came later. 
Number one, in Genesis, there are a number of curses given because of Adam and Eve's sin, the punishment of such we are afflicted with today. I agree with that, but at the same time, uh, through one man, a sin entered the world, and through one man, uh, we are saved from that sin. So, corporal, I mean, yeah, uh, we know that there There's are... sin in the world, yeah. I mean, sin, he, mankind is sinful. I think I like what Adam's point is here. This is like, if, if there is anything called generational curse, this would be it. It would just be the curse of on sin. mankind. Yeah. But, but, that, but then we start calling that original sin, and then you have problems. Some people don't believe in original sin. They don't believe, yeah. you know. And so, well, J- Adam brings up uh, Genesis three sixteen. I will make your pains and childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Okay, but here's the issue: is that once sin entered the world, and this gets into a whole different t- topic. But once sin entered the world, then you have uh, you have things you have pain basically, and the reason you have pain is because of death. Death is a ramification of sin. So I don't know if I, I wouldn't necessarily say that that's generational sin. Or just or death ge- into the world. Yeah, there's de- it just brought death into the world. And that affects every person. So sure. it, it affects, but yeah. Anyway, he gives some other uh, great examples. Uh, um, I'm going to skip some of these, though. He says, number two, we see sinful or negative patterns being carried out throughout various generations. It's possible the accounts below could be learned behavior, but I believe there is likely more to it than that. He gives Genesis 22, Abraham lies about his wife. Genesis 26, 7, Isaac lies about his wife. Uh, Once again, I don't know if that's... I understand his point, and I'm not saying that it's not a good point. I'm just saying I I don't... And I think Adam would admit, I don't think that this necessarily falls under generational curses. I don't know that these are... Are these sins also? In my view, I mean, Abraham, he goes on to say, well, in a way, it's his half-sister, right? In other words, it, it's not, uh, the Bible doesn't say Abraham sinned and lied about his wife, or Isaac sinned, and that, and that there's a curse. So while, yeah, it might be, we might think ethically about these choices, and whether or not were they upright at the time where they did this, that's a, that's a discussion that we could have. But I'm not, I don't see the Torah describing this in terms of sin, and curse. So I'm yeah. not sure it applies from his, my view. His last, uh, his last example is a great example. Nehemiah 9, uh, 2 through 3, he, in the ESV, says, The Israelites are said to be confessing both their sins as well as the sins of their fathers. If the transgression of their fathers had no bearing on them whatsoever, then I don't see the significance of confessing the iniquities of their fathers. Um, it's, it's a good point. However, I would say that things happen corporally. Corporately. Sorry, corporately. And so, um, you know, we see sins of a nation, for instance, sins of Israel, they affect everyone. Right now, we can say that Israel doesn't believe in the Messiah, Yeshua. Now, are there people within the realm of Israel that believe in the Messiah, Yeshua? Surely there is. I would say that I, I'm part of that. I would say that Rob's part of that. Um, but we can say that Israel Israel doesn't believe in the Messiah Yeshua. How can we say that? Because corporate, corporately, they don't. Um, and so this is why on like Yom Kippur, 
if you've ever been through a Yom Kippur service, I know that some of our listeners are are, are not part of the Messianic movement and might not understand exactly all the uh, intricacies of Yom Kippur. But traditionally, during Yom Kippur, we say uh, sins of we say prayers of forgiveness uh, for for corporate prayers. And so some of them, you know, there's a whole long list of things. And as a group, you know, within the synagogue, you say these prayers together. And some of them are like, "I have stolen," "I have." Uh, born false witness, all these kind of things, and and some people might think to themselves, "Well, I I've never stolen anything, you know." I, but the point is, is that we ask forgiveness as a whole because corporately we, you know, we are a whole. We are seen as a whole. Well, and that's reflected in like the Lord's prayers, "Our Father," right? Forgive yeah. us our sins. Well, and not only that, but the but, idea of that collective we. Yeah, and you, but you, I think the scripture sets this up, and I've talked about how, uh, you know, authority you have, uh you know, the Messiah is the head. And then within smaller communities, you usually have leaders um, set up within those communities. And when the temple services here, you had priests and all that kind of stuff. And it keeps trickling down. And then you have head of household. We see this throughout the apostolic scriptures too. Uh, the the Almighty sets up head of household. And then over parent, you know, parents are head over the children, so on and so forth. So it's this trickle down. Um Anyway, another aspect to this, I, I think uh, Nehemiah 9 is a good passage that Adam uh, brings up. And it reminds me of Daniel 9 also. Daniel also is in a situation there in Babylon, and he's confessing his sins, and their sins as well as the sins of their fathers. My understanding is that in both Nehemiah and in Daniel's situation, they're locating themselves where they are in the covenant. In other words, they're, at the end of Deuteronomy, we learn about the blessings and the curses of the covenant. As a matter of fact, in Daniel, I'm not so, I haven't looked at Nehemiah 9 for a while, but in Daniel it says the curse, the curses that are written in the law of Moses are upon us. In other words, from their perspective, when they're confessing their sin and the sins of their fathers, they're acknowledging and confessing to God, this is where we are because of the covenant. In other words, the, the covenant defines X, Y, and Z. Do this, don't do that. Blessing, cursing. Here we are in a foreign land. Way, you know, people going way astray. Why? Because we and and our fathers before us are are under the curses, right? We've strayed, and so they're kind of saying on the map of of covenantal terms, we're under the curses. Yeah. I don't know that they're confessing a sin in a way, like I can't confess any of my ancestors' sins in a way that is going to grant them forgiveness or anything like that, or that somehow if I had an ancestor that's, you know, uh, not saved, that somehow I can confess their sin and their soul is going to be saved. I don't, I don't believe that that is a possibility. Um, I think rather these confessions pardon me, are locating them in the map. They're acknowledging they're in the like Deuteronomy 30, you know what I'm thinking in the in the end of Deuteronomy, where it says this is what's going to happen, you know. I'm yeah, telling I, you to choose life, but you're not. You're gonna you're gonna sin. You're gonna go astray, and then, you know, you're gonna remember, and you're gonna and I'm gonna bring you back, and that's where they are. I think that in terms of corporate uh, corporate sin. Uh, some of that definitely affects me. I might not necessarily be, be judged for, I mean, I might be judged for what people might consider corporate sins. If the nation does something, if a nation does something, I might get retribution for it, even though I 
wasn't in charge of it. But I don't think that I can say my father uh, lied. And so now that lie is, you know, I'm paying the price for that lie. Um, Who told you you can eat my cookies? Yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, there, there was another one person shared with me a completely different uh, perspective on generational curses that had never occurred to me and never heard of it. But apparently, like in occult circles, like some of these Satan worshippers or whatever, witches and warlocks, that they will take on themselves in the, the language of their, their guild or of their religion, things that are, resemble generational oaths or curses that like they actually invoke or evoke, or I don't know what the word is, through some sort of magical incantation oaths on binding that they believe are binding on future generations of the, of their offspring. Of course, those are, those are null and void before the God of the universe. And, th- and that's the point. And that's that, that's the point that I would bring up is that, you know what, somebody who is of a, uh, you know, of a dark religion, obviously any religion that's not the true religion is a dark religion, but any, you know, uh, someone who's a witch or whatever and tries to put a, a curse or a spell or whatever on me will have absolutely zero effect on me unless the Almighty allows that to happen. My God is bigger than that. Um, my God is bigger than, than uh, the dark side. And so, you know, those things will not affect me unless the Almighty al- allows them to. And if that's the case, then I will deal directly with the Almighty, not with, uh, you know, the dark side. And that brings me to this. You know, I, I should say, I know we're spending a lot of time on this, but I, but I think it's good to clear some of these things up. There's, there's been talk of, you know, because we talked about uh, demons and, and those kind of things. I do believe that demons can, if allowed by the Almighty, can put sickness onto us. And I think, for instance, uh, a person... I think this can happen with believers too, but let's start with a, with a non-believing scenario. A person uh, becomes ill, and uh, let's say that a demon is, is making that person ill, okay? And then they go to the witch doctor in their, in their city, and the witch doctor, you know, takes some chicken bones and, and waves some feathers and burns some incense or whatever, and that demon takes the sickness away from the person, and all of a, person, all of a sudden the person's healed. What does that person think? This, They're going to associate it with that. Yeah. Yeah. This witch doctor, uh, you know, knows what he's doing. It, this, it, it really works. Well, now let's put it into the realm of believers. I'm not saying that this is across the board, but, you know, I've thought of this scenario before. I think that, that the dark side loves to make believers think things that aren't true about their religion, about their belief in God. I've thought before about some of these crusades, you know, somebody is ill or whatnot, and maybe the Almighty has allowed an a evil spirit to bring sickness on a person, and that person is ill, and they decide that they're going to go to one of these crusades. So they go to, you know, a Benny Hinn crusade or whatever, and they get there, and all of a sudden, uh, you know, the person up front comes and blows on them or whatever, and the, and the demon takes the sickness away, and all of a sudden they're healed. Now, they might attribute that to God. And some person would say, well, why in the world would you know, a demon want to do anything like that? 
in my mind, the idea is now this person has put stock into the person up front who quote unquote healed them. And so now they give their money to that person. They listen to that person. The person might be teaching all sorts of falsehood, but because they healed this person, the person believes what they're saying now. I believe those kind of things can happen. Sure. Well, Yeshua said, you know, when, when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, it, it, often it'll come back and it'll find the house, meaning the man, the person, with the house swept, cleaned up, and they'll bring seven more along with it. Yeah. In other words, you, there are the, there's a realm of, you know, we have all these stories of, in the ancient Jewish world of people who had cast out demons and things like that. But when we're dealing with our covenant, you know, with Brit Hadashah, with the covenant where God puts his spirit in us, and claims us, you know, purchases us, purchases our souls with the blood of Yeshua, redeems us from from the curse of sin, basically. That we're His, exactly. we're His, you know, and and you know that it's interesting. I don't know how far you want to push on that, but one, it reminds me of the other aspect we were talking about: the uh, efficacy of prayer, and like, does God change His mind? Mm-hmm. Like where with the Samuel passage where David is fasting, right, and, and praying. Well, is he trying to change God's mind? Is it changing things? And then we have, you know, some verses that people brought up. What could you talk about? Where God seems to be, where God seems to change his mind. Moses intercedes for Israel, and he seems to change his mind. What's up with that? Did yep. God really, did God have a plan A, and then it, it didn't work out, and so he had to, Go back to the drawing board and come up with Plan B. And I'm glad, did, or I'm gl- if, did God have Plan B, and then yeah. um, a righteous person didn't, you know, saw that happening or that that was going to happen? That maybe the Lord said He was going to do it, or a prophet, and then He prayed, and then God said, "Okay, I'll tell you what, I won't do Plan B. I'll do Plan C." Yeah. Uh, well, the, and okay. So I'm glad you brought that up because. This person uh, on one of our videos made this made this point. Uh, they bring up Exodus thirty two eleven through fourteen. Moshe pleaded with Adonai his God. He said, Adonai, why must your anger blaze against your own people, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and a strong hand? Why let the Egyptians say it was with e- evil intentions that he led them out to slaughter them in, in the hills and wipe them off the face of the earth. Turn from your fierce anger. Relent. Don't bring us. Uh, don't bring such disaster on your people. Remember uh, Abraham, Yitzhak, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore to uh, your very self. You promised them, I will make your descendants as many as the stars in the sky, and I will give all this land I have spoken about to your descendants, and they will possess it forever. Adonai then changed his mind about the disaster he had planned for his people. Okay, so this person brings this up. Now, interestingly, the word uh, changed his mind is not actually changed his mind. In Hebrew, the word is actually repent. He repented of the disaster. That's, that's an ifal, vayinachem. Yeah. Yinachem. And it's a handful of times it's used with God as the subject. Exactly. And so, and, but, but this is the same word used when, you know, when Rachel dies. I think, is it Rachel dies? and Or is it... Uh, and it says, Yinachem, he, he is comforted. In other words, you, we have uh, this verb used to mean to be comforted or to, to be consoled. And 
you know, I looked at the Greek translation, you know, the Septuagint. They translate it. They have 16 different words in Greek. They translate this one <laughs> Hebrew word into when it's used depending on context because it's difficult. The idea is that God is feeling something really deeply. Well, the thi- it's, a, it's, a, it's a human. And then we also yeah. have verses wait, in wait, like hey. Numbers where it says, God is not a man that he, yinachem, that he will repent. And so we're, we're challenged by the scriptures to really pause and meditate on what is, what are we learning here? You brushed on um, it for a second though, Rob, you said, uh, you know, he is not a man and, and it's, uh, it, it puts it into human, it put th- this passage and th- this kind of language when it comes to God puts God into a place where we as humans can, can relate to it. I don't think that God really repented. And, and it's interesting that uh, Moses... Right. And we should clarify, when we say repent, it's not teshuvah, it's not yeah. shuv. It's yeah. a different word altogether. So, uh, and it's not metanoia, which is the Greek word that often translated like repent. Well, in, so, this, in this passage, Moses even says, he says, he says, remember, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by yourself. Exactly. Covenant. And so he it, goes back. This is what I believe. And I'll, I'll just say it real quickly. Go for it. These situations where Moses intercedes for the people because God's anger is, is uh, you know, his wrath. He expresses his wrath and what he's going to do. I believe this is how God created shaped the character of his prophets. Mm-hmm. He wanted Moses to be one who would, would put intercession for the people first and foremost, that would, would always, when push comes to shove, in the most dire situation of the world that Moses could ever be in, he would intercede and he would go back to the foundational covenantal promise. That's what God wanted. Yeah. And that, that's what he did. And it's no different than Abraham offering Isaac. Well, and Abraham, it, Abraham said, you know what? God already promised. God yeah, already exactly. Promised. So, I, I, and that's... That he, he can't go against thing. his word. Yeah. So, this, this a context, we have to remember, we're dealing with covenant. We're that's dealing right. with a situation where God is bringing these expressions out of Moses on purpose to shape Moses and to teach, ultimately, who, uh, who Messiah is, who put intercession for people and covenant. Uh, you know, he actually embodied that more than Moses could without sin, right? Yeah, I, don't, I, I still don't believe that, uh, that prayer changes the mind of the Almighty. I still don't, I think that uh, you can't change. It changes us. It changes us, that's right. And God wants us to change. God, we're, he's going to prune us, and he's, he wants us to be more fruitful. And that's, that's one of the means that God uh, uses. He puts us in situations where we are, you know, where we get refined. You know, he gets the impurities. If It's just like we heat up gold or silver, you know, to get the impurities out. That's what he does with his saints. And on the you twist know? of a word, everything changes. <laughs> okay, let's move on. Uh, at the beginning of our, our show today, you might have heard, I, I'm starting to do this. I actually am having fun trying to do this. What I'm trying to do at the beginning of our shows, I did this last week and I did it this week. I put a little blurb in at the beginning <laughs> before our intro music that uh, that kind of gives a hint of what we might be talking about today. And I know that we've spent, what, 40 minutes or more already on just addressing things from last week, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. I think that's great. And I'm happy that we uh, did that. I, I hope that it cleared some stuff up for people. 
Um, it probably brought more questions than answers, to be honest with you. Uh, because honestly, I don't have the answers for all of it. And I don't think Rob does either, but, uh, we're trying our best here, people. So the thing that we really wanted to talk about today was Bible codes. And I don't know, maybe people, uh, maybe you might remember this. If you're a Christian, uh, or if you're a messianic or if you're Jewish, you, uh, a non-believing Jew, you might, uh, remember back in the late nineties, early thousands, there was this phenomenon of the Bible codes. There what? was there were codes about like Y two K. Oh, do, uh, you got to hear some. You you got to hear some okay, of the stuff ahead, that I got. Uh, let's set this up real quick. I want I want people to know exactly. If you haven't heard of the Bible codes, uh, it was a huge thing going on in the late nineties, early thousands. I think it's interesting that it's kind of fallen off the map now, and there's reasons why it's fallen off the map. Uh, but so I just wrote a little blurb here. The Bible codes really became popular with Michael Drosnins. I, I don't know how to say it. Drosnin's New York Times bestseller, The Bible Code. Within this book, Drosnin finds words by starting with a letter, then using a formula to find words. Okay, so this is kind of how it works. For instance, if you start with the first ta- uh, tet in Genesis and count 50 letters uh, to the next letter and continue to use each 50th letter, the letters chosen will spell out the word Torah. Oh, Tav. Tav, I'm sorry. Yeah, right, right, right. Tav, okay. So, and that happens That happens in uh, Genesis. It also happens in Exodus. It doesn't happen in uh, Leviticus, but it does happen backwards in Numbers and Deuteronomy. So Torah, Torah, and then uh, Torah going backwards, Torah going backwards, and then they, they use uh, the same kind of formula a little differently, but they use a, a numeric formula in, in Leviticus, and they get the name yod and so they say the Torah is always pointing to yod Okay, so that was like the big one. Everybody was like, oh my word, I can't believe it. You know, th- there's hidden messages. Okay, so um, Drosnin's work seems to be based in part on the work of three authors from the Hebrew U that wrote a paper titled Equidistant Letter Sequences in the Book of Genesis. And, ELS. They call it ELS. Yeah. And the and the main guy who uh the main guy who really did a lot of work was mat- mathematician at the Hebrew U. His name his last name was Rips. And so Drosnin really bases a lot of the stuff off of off of Rips' work. Okay. According to the original findings, the codes should only work in the Torah. Originally, at the very beginning. Okay. So the first five books of the Bible. You would not be able to find them. In other books, at least not to the accuracy that they are supposedly found in the Torah. This was the claim in the beginning of the Bible codes. Okay, look, it's it's in the Torah. God gave it to to us in the Torah. Um, I suppose I'll play a clip. Let's let's play a clip now. Uh, now, Rob has not heard these clips, so this is going to be a lot of fun. Uh, so this is kind of where it's come to now. When you, if you hear the Bible codes today. This is the kind of stuff that you hear. Here is on the possibility of Hillary Clinton becoming president in 2016. Uh, What I used here is what I call the King James Version Bible Code. Uh, The Bible Code is where you run a software program and look for words in the Bible using equidistant letter sequence searches. Now, I do this in the New T- King James Version, New Testament Bible, in the Old Testament or New Testament. 
and to look on uh, for a Bible, what is called a Bible code matrix on the possibility of Hillary Clinton being elected president in 2016. Uh, the search words I used Dude, were Hillary. What's that? You're killing me here. <laughs> Hang on, we're almost done. You only got. In 2016 for the year. And I found in the Old Testament this matrix at 1 Chronicles 2523 to Psalms 119.11. Okay, so uh, we'll stop it there. So basically, well, what, does he, what does he find? Well, he finds uh, uh, Hillary. The possibility. Yeah. So now, okay, I gotta, we got to talk about this a little bit. So basically what has happened, what originally happened was Drosnin comes comes out with these findings, and the and these rabbis jump on board. These non-believing rabbis jump on board. They say, oh, my word, yes, within the Torah we can find all these Bible codes, okay? And they say, well, the interesting thing about these Bible codes is, is that within the Torah it's just these, it's just five books. It's a very small piece of work considering, okay? And um, basically you're not going to be able to find this same phenomenon within small works to the accuracy that we find in the Torah. That's the argument. But then what do they do? Then they use, then they say, wait, it doesn't just work in the Torah. It works in the entire Tanakh, the Old Testament. And it works in the King James Version. Well, see, yeah. And, and so now you have, you have people saying, well, it works in the Tanakh. So now, so now all of a sudden those five books go to this huge plethora of, of books. Okay. But here's the, here's the problem with all of this automatically. What what codex are you going to use for the Torah? You know, are you going to use uh, you know, uh, Sinaiticus? Yeah, they use they, they use like like Leningrad codex. Exactly. They like the, and they, they're all different. That's the point. Because if there's one letter different, if if they put a vav in one or a cholam in another, it's gonna it shifts everything off. What about the? Are you going to use the Qumran? Because in the Qumran scrolls, they they write everything out. Fully, I mean, for the most part. So now you have a totally different count of letters. Yeah, yeah, this is this is uh, crazy. And so, so you know, I would not be surprised. Like some of these, where you see Torah or something, you know, I think this this there are things that are like checksum. So the scribes they could check a Torah scroll pretty quickly. They could look at at a certain place because the same letters are going to be in the same places. And who knows? Maybe that was just a way the that are in, that. A certain textual tradition was preserved by saying, "Hey, if you want a quick, if you see a Torah scroll, you just scroll through it real quick and look for specific things. And if and if it doesn't add up, then you know that there's errors. There are certain, you know, it wasn't copied by uh, a kosher scribe or something. You know, it doesn't have to mean well. Here's these the mysterious. Uh, here's the other problem. Here's the other problem. If you're going to use the whole checksum, th- they call it a data a checksum data or something like if, that. If you're going to use the entire Tanakh." Entire Old Testament. Then, what order of books are you gonna are, are you gonna put the books in? Yeah, that's another. Yeah, there you because, go. Because because you're if, it, if you're spanning. Yeah, if your if your sequences are spanning multiple books of the Bible, yeah, that's another problem. Yeah, because the, the I mean, if you if you have your stone Tanakh, then uh, and, and you try and somebody says, okay, open up to First Chronicles, 
and you and the person next to you has an ESV and you're used to using an ESV, guess what? Chronicles is not in the same place that it normally is. So there's that problem. Okay, so I, I wrote a little bit of this. I say, uh, but this guy, but this guy we just listened to, he's not even dealing with Hebrew or Greek, right? And that's the bigger point. Basically, this guy didn't realize it, but he's disproven that the, these people who are now using the KJV. They this is one way that the KJV only people say that. Oh, see, look, we got the inspired text. Well, they're not using the sixteen eleven. Oh. They're not using the uh, they're not using the sixteen eleven uh, King James version anyway. So that's number one. They're using the later copy from the 18, from the 1700s. And uh, basically they're saying, oh, see, look, the KJV is the inspired text. But what they've done now is they've taken English and they've proven that a book, now they've added, so now they have all 66 books, new and old. And what they've done is they've proven that, no, uh, these Bible codes actually aren't, don't work. It, it, they can work in any book is basically what what uh, has gone on. So uh, believers have, have now taken uh, Torah codes and applied them not only to the rest of the Tanakh, but also to the Apostolic Scriptures. These codes span through different books of the Bible. So the question then would be, uh, what order would the books be in? Okay, if you're not willing to move the books around, then what order do you want to take? Okay, so then I looked up some some articles. This is from an article, Bible Codes, A Lie That Won't Die, <laughs> by J. Michael, uh, June 8th, 2012. And this is a quote from his, from his article. He says, one reason that Bible codes have gone out of fashion is that mathemat- uh, mathematicians and stat- statisticians have thoroughly, completely, and convincingly disproven them. For example, Barry Simon of the Caltech Math- Mathematics Department has shown that any su- sufficiently large text will have similar letter patterns in, in it. Famously, the same allog- uh, algorithms used in the Bible codes yielded similar, uh, similarly prophetic results. He put, put quotes, prophetic results when used on Hebrew translations of War and Peace. Indeed, when in 1997, popular author Michael Drosnin, who wrote a book on the subject, challenged critics to find the same prophecy regarding the assassination of Yitzhak Rabin in Moby Dick, as Bible Code folks had found in the Bible, Australian computer scientist uh, Brendan McKay did just that. And for good measure, he found letter arrangements predicting the assassination of Trotsky, Gandhi, and Martin Luther King Jr., in the Hebrew translation of Moby Dick. That's correct. Which I think was done by Salkinson, yeah. who also translated the New Testament into modern Hebrew. Okay, so um, I have a note here, set this clip up by explaining that... Oh, well, wow. Hmm. <laughs> oh, no. I don't know, Caleb. Oh, no. Moby Dick is inspired? Is that what you're thinking here? Okay, so the person talking... Uh, <laughs> Uh, the person who's talking in this next clip that I'm going to play is a rabbi, and he basically, one of the first tests that was done in the, in the Torah was they took famous rabbi names, right, right, and they found the rabbi's names, and then they found either the, the date they were born on. Or like where they were born. Or, or where they were, well, yeah, and, and, and hang, hang on, actually they found the date that they were either born or the date that they died. One of the problems with this is that they didn't find the year that they were born or died. And so that was, that was kind of one of the hiccups in that, in that theory. But then this rabbi tried a different algorithm at the end of the, these rabbis' names. And he, what did he find? He found the place where that they, that they were born. Okay? And so he says that this is the, this is the city names. He, he uses a specific 
uh, name for this test that he he ran. I want to play this for you. It is here. You go. Take a listen to this one. Then people have claimed that they found similar codes in Moby Dick and War and Peace. That they could find similar codes in any text of one's choice. That is absolute nonsense. They have indeed produced counterfeit codes in War and Peace and in Moby Dick, and they can produce them in virtually any text. They are not the same as the real thing. They are not done a priori. They are done by cheating. Their claim is that since we can cheat on the data and bias the experiment to do whatever we want, therefore, Whitstam and Rips could have done the same, and therefore we shall assume that they have done the same. They do not deal at all with the fact that my city's experiment proves that that is not the case. City's experiment. And by the way, to accept their challenge, I would say I would like to see them try to produce an experiment like my city's experiment to confirm their rabbi's experiment that succeeded so well in war and peace. They actually did. They haven't done so. Yeah, they did. They haven't even addressed the city's experiment because it proves that, in fact, there was no such manipulation. What they have done is very similar to what Whitstam and Rips have done to the layperson, to the expert. They have nothing in common. Okay, so there, oh, wow. there are several issues with this statement. Okay, first of all, this is not I, true. I like, first of all, footnote. Go wanna, for it. Can we take that last little clip and have that part of our library? To the expert, they have nothing in common. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I actually already took that clip. I'm going to play it again here in a few seconds. Oh, awesome. I love that. To the okay. expert. Okay, so names with spe- specific corresponding dates have been found in random secular works. That's happened. They found the assassination dates of Gandhi and, and other people. The second problem that we would have with uh, believing that famous Jewish rabbis, their birth dates, and their home cities were placed by God in the Bible is that this would mean that the Almighty was in some way giving credit to these men. Are we to suppose that the Holy One is sanctioning these rabbis by placing their names in the Torah? As a believer, this brings problems. Why in the world would we believe that the Almighty has placed uh, you know, names of unbelieving famous rabbis in the Torah? Do you understand what I'm saying, Rob? Yeah. That's all I get, huh? Yeah. Okay. Uh, I mean, what? <laughs> well, beyond I mean, that... The, 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 this the, guy obviously wants... He sees this as proof of... Oral Torah and proof of his Judaism, proof of all these things. Well, um, and, and the the thing that he doesn't address is that yeah, they they did do more tests uh, with the rabbis' names. They tried to find uh, the years that they were born or died in. Didn't they couldn't find it? Okay, so let's listen to this last clip again. Okay, this is all in the same documentary, by the way. I sat down, I watched this hour and a half, hour 40, 40 minute long documentary on the Bible codes that was that was done back in like two thousand, and it was awful. And, and I posted a picture. Uh, I was watching it. I posted a picture on our Facebook page. I, I took a screenshot of it. The guy who's talking it, uh, behind him, he has this huge board with Hebrew, which is upside down on it. Which I thought I was saw that. That hilarious. was awesome. <laughs> like no one in the no one in the crew, no one had no one realized. Like, hey, that doesn't look right. <laughs> oh, they're thinking codes. Yes, exactly. Okay, so codes, let's let's secret listen. Secret mystery codes. We're gonna sell a video. That's right. Let's let's add some music and ancient kind of sounding instruments now before before i play this last clip or these two clips in a row i should say this you know what? if you believe in in bible codes i would ask you how far you're going to take it do you believe now that we can we can go to the the king james version bible and, and find bible codes in it 
Uh, is it in the Torah? Is it in the full Tanakh? I mean, I would definitely. What we need, what we need, Caleb, is a halakha. Oh, oh, like, what are the rules? No, no. <laughs> we need it. It needs to be. It needs to be a certain Hebrew text. It needs to be only the Torah or not. You know, we have to. We have to come up with the rules. See, but the the point is, people are going to say, "Are you are you telling me that you that God couldn't put some secret code in there?" Yeah, of course he could if he wanted to. Sure, he could. Absolutely. I just don't buy that he did. I just don't. I don't buy it. I'm sorry to disappoint people. I really don't buy it. I don't think that. I don't think that that that, that has and happened. There's, I, there's a concern I have is like Yeshua. Yeshua didn't teach this way. What what yeah. business do we have going out promoting this kind of thinking and getting people thinking in these terms? It's like it's foreign to Yeshua's instructions for us. That's right. I, I don't get it. And so. Right there, I you know that seems like a real simplistic attitude, but sure, God could do it if He wanted. But you, you know, it just my rabbi, my rabbi didn't didn't teach me that way. Exactly. But, you know, so I, yeah, I don't feel like I have any business doing it. Okay, let's go back and listen to this. La- the end of this clip again. We're going to listen to this one more time. Here you go. What they have done is very similar to what Witzman and Ripsa done to the layperson, to the expert. They have nothing in common. To the expert, they have nothing in common. Now, I love how this documentary did this because right after he says, to the expert, they have nothing in common. Right after that, they put, and this is a documentary that is highly promoting. It's like propaganda for the, the, the Bible codes, okay? It's like filled with propaganda for the Bible codes. So right after he says, to the, to the expert, it means nothing, they actually bring on two mathematicians, well-known mathematicians. Okay, they bring on these mathematicians, experts in this field. What do they say? I studied the work of uh, Dr. Rips and his uh, partners, and the outcomes of his experiment expresses uh, his own wishes and uh, desires rather than any real scientific phenomenon. The quality of a cluster of words you, you find is really a sign of the cleverness of the person doing the looking and not of any intrinsic character of the document you're looking at. <laughs> I agree with those guys. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but those are two experts. Yeah, they're two experts. Obviously, that disagree with this other rabbi you quoted. Well, this guy, just, yeah, this guy, this, this rabbi says, uh, to the experts, it means nothing. Well, he would say they're not experts. That that rabbi would say they're, they're just uh, using trickery. You know, well, one of the one of the other things that uh, this this guy brought up in this article, and I think that this is this is telling, is that, uh, you know, a lot of the missionaries, the Jewish missionaries, and when I say Jewish missionaries, I mean, not uh, people who are believers, but people who are, you know, the the non-believing Jews who go out and try to convert people to Judaism, people like Jews for Judaism and whatnot. They tried to use the Bible codes to convert people back to Judaism from Christianity and from, you know, and they did that by saying, look, the rabbis are in here. You know, that's, that's, and, uh, so basically this guy's point was, well, we've, we've basically proven, we've seen time and time again that the Bible codes are, they work in pretty much any book and you have to manipulate stuff to really, it's, it's interesting how they do it. Uh, one of the things that you might not realize is that it's not just, it's not just like an even number. It's not like you just take, okay, let's put, put it in English. You don't just say, okay, well. I'm going to start with the first D and then I'm going to count, you know, seven letters and 
then I get an A, and then I count seven letters and I get a D. So that says dad. You know, that's not how. That's not the only way that they do it. They also construct stuff by going like, okay, I'm going to start with this letter, and then I'm going to go seven, and then I'm going to go six, and then I'm going to go five, and then I'm going to go four, and so on. Right. So, that's what they call the algorithms. They, they yeah. try different ways of manipulating the, the numbers. So basically, if you try enough algorithms in different parts of a book, you're going to be able to get any code that you want they to get. They go forward and backward, too. And they go forward and backward. They go up and down, all sorts of stuff. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I, I've, I'm i sorry. Even the Torah, Torah, uh, yod heh vav hey, Torah backwards, Torah backwards, it's a nice thought. It is. You know, and people can say, oh, it shows that the finger of God is on the Torah. I don't think we need a Bible codes to show that the finger of God's on the Torah. If somebody's not going to believe the 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 Bible and the story of salvation and all that, then showing them secret codes from algorithms is not going to convince them. Right. It's just not. That's and if right. it and if it does, maybe God will use that as a tool to bring them in. But the point is, is that that's not. I mean, um, you know, God can use all sorts of tools. I know people who uh, came to faith through Benny Hinn. I know people who came to faith through all sorts of wacky, you know, if you ever read uh, uh, the story of the Jesus, the Jesus freaks back in the, in the late sixties, early seventies, um, people came to faith in ways that we would absolutely reject, but God used those ways to bring those people to the Messiah. Exactly. And they don't stay there. No. They grow and they mature. I mean, that's, that's what we're supposed to do. Um, there, there was a evangelical in the in the Jesus Freak movement. Uh, named his last name is Frisbee. His uh, his testimony is is absolutely unreal. It's just, it's it's pretty incredible. But the point is, is that uh, you know the way that he came to faith. Uh, the guy who wrote the cross and the switchblade back in the late '60s. You know he worked with gangs and whatnot. Uh, he highly condemned Frisbee. Uh, when he first converted, and that was because you know there was still drugs going on and whatnot in the life of these guys who who were claiming to be believers, um, and eventually they moved they moved away from that and they became very strong men in God who who helped uh, bring thousands of people to the Lord. Um, so I'm I'm only saying this to say that the Lord can use whatever means He wants. He can use you know Bible codes or whatever to bring people to the Lord, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's right. I just don't see the evidence of you know Bible codes. I don't, and, and like Rob, like you said, man, uh, the Messiah the Messiah didn't come to Earth and say, "Oh, you're missing it." Look, I can prove to you that the the Bible's true. Check it out. Start with the first you know letter here and count this many. And you know he didn't. That wasn't his. That's not what he taught. So why do we need to to jump on board with all that stuff? I remember back there were ones in the 90s, late 90s, as we were approaching Y2K, people had found these Bible codes about catastrophes with Y2K that they believed were going to happen, that the Bible codes were supporting them. Well, it didn't really happen, you know? Yeah. I remember someone told me that uh, they, they knew that Al Gore was going to be the president because of, <laughs> like, I don't remember, I think it was Bible codes or something. And it's like, oh, I, I don't, I don't get it. Well, that clip I, I don't that... get the fascination that people have with it. And, and to the degree that when they produce a video, they're so ignorant that they have this probably pretty expensive graphic uh, thing behind them 
and it's upside down and they and no one has a clue i mean they're they're abusing the word of god they're they're taking the word of god and they're parading it around as if it's supporting their agenda and they're so ignorant of it that they don't even realize how to read it for what it is so instead of learning to read hebrew i'm going to just start counting letters get a little bible software program and you know, it's just crazy. I, I I told this to my dad the other day. You know, I and um, I don't. I really don't want to offend people with this, but you know, I think that uh, people who tend to constantly be searching for the next thing that's going to tickle the ears. I don't know how else to say it. The m- next, you know, fantastic claim, and the people who are buying into all these fantastic claims. I, I I certainly would not say that they're not they're not saved. Of, of course, you know I, I think that many of uh, many people are obviously and and have great hearts for the Lord, but I think that they might not fully understand the weight and the intricacies and how magnificent the salvation story is. I'm not saying that the, the salvation story isn't doesn't apply to them. What I'm saying is that I don't think that they've fully comprehended, and maybe none of us have, but they haven't. You know, they're still maybe at, at a uh, more beginner level of the story of salvation. And the reason I say that is because, to me, when I pick up the Word of God, every time I pick it up, it's like, man, it blows my mind again. It constantly is blowing my mind, the story of salvation. The story of the Messiah coming and dying for His people. It is absolutely mind-blowing. I don't need to be looking for, uh, and maybe, maybe I'm wrong, but uh, you know, I don't need to be looking for uh, Bible codes. I don't need to be looking for the Aleph Tav. I don't need to be looking for all this stuff. It does, you know, it, the story. That's why I get suspicious. You know, when the Bible tell it warns us about, you know, itchy ears and winds of doctrine that carry people away. It could be God uses those to, to separate wheat from tares. In other words, this is one of the things He permits to allow those people that don't have saving faith. They're just caught up in in some sensational excitement, he, he lets them have it, you know, he lets yeah. them believe the lie and I, to get, and to have their fascination and, and try to satisfy their appetites on these, uh, little adventures, you know, um, here's the, I, I think, I think there's enough from the scriptures itself that to support that we should be very, very suspicious of, of any kind of fantastic claims of whether it's hidden treasure or the original Aramaic or uh, secret codes or, you know, all these kinds of things we've seen uh, and we've talked about as of late. You know, we just take a deep breath and go, wow, what are they selling? Yeah. What are they trying to sell me right now? Well, what does it have to do with, with me sitting at the feet of, of Yeshua? Yeah, exactly. You know, what does it have to do with with the salvation and what and the gospel? You know, that it's just basic nuts and bolts. No doubt. All right. Well, uh, I think that's all I got for today. Our huge thanks to our producers today, Adam and Rebecca. Yeah. Thank you so much for uh, supporting us. And uh, yeah, I want to say thanks to all the people, all the email support, yeah. the Facebook. Uh, feedback. We still got the Facebook comments. I, I know that we want to talk about. Um, so um, we just really appreciate hearing from people, even if you disagree. 
uh, or if you have a different opinion you want to share. And it seems like for the most part, people are are very uh, kind in their in posting, and so it's yeah, it's even when they disagree, which is great. All right, uh, I can tell you this, folks. There is a code in the Bible. It's not hidden. It's right there in plain sight. It takes the Holy Spirit to uh, truly grasp it and, and understand it to the fullest extent and to apply it to our lives. But there is a code. And uh, it's not secret. It's a code right there in the pages of the Word that talk about our great God and Savior, Yeshua, the Messiah. 